I invite you to open your Bible again to the book of Mark as we journey our way through Mark's brief gospel. We found so many treasures here and we left our thoughts unfinished last week having covered about half of this rich passage that has so much more than meets the eye. The title of the sermon is The Crowd and the Called, and we spent most of our time last week thinking about the crowd, and today I'd like to focus more on the called, but by way of important review, let's look at the entirety of this section. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark 3, 7 through 19. This is what the Word of God says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boangerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. May the Spirit of God put these words in our hearts and show us the glory of our Master Jesus today. So the passage starts with the crowd, and it's an important point in the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been reading Mark or following along with us, perhaps some of those images of your childhood, those idols that we all have, uh, concepts of Jesus uh, painted for us in Sunday school curriculum or in in some kind of church painting or in your grandmother's house, are already being questioned and undermined because so often Jesus is depicted out there on kind of a green hillside with a few lambs, right? Maybe one in his shoulders or one in his arms. He usually has a lamb. And there's not much around Jesus except a pastoral scene of, of green grass and a hillside. Or maybe he's with a little kid or two a few children as he's being tender, Jesus, meek and mild. And, and really people are giving him in those paintings so much, 
space, social distancing, if you will. And that's not what Jesus' ministry was like. I mean, the way we read it in in Mark, the, the word, the Greek word for crowd has already been used repeatedly. Crowds surrounding him. And this isn't like a, you know, Dodger Stadium kind of a crowd where everyone has their chair. I think the word is more like mob. And if you've ever been in a procession that is disorderly, in some kind of protest, or if you've ever been in a crowd where people are, are pressing towards a celebrity, uh, harassing them, you know, trying to get closer to them, that's what it was like to be Jesus. The reason we see him so often retreating and trying to find places of solitude for prayer or having a, a covert meeting like he does in this passage with his disciples is because he was constantly surrounded, harassed, pressed up against I mean, in this passage, the depiction is not people just simply trying to, to get Jesus to heal them in a, in a single file line. The genuine concern is that Jesus is going to get crushed by this swelling mob that will not leave him alone. And so we encountered the crowd last time, withdrawing to the seaside in the northern regions of his ministry in verse 7. A great multitude is what they're called. And we saw what this multitude is made of. It's made of lots of Jewish people from hundreds of miles in every direction. And if you're familiar with biblical geography, all these names are showing you north and west and south and east, all directions. And if you're familiar with the, the places that are identified, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem are obviously very Jewish places. Uh, Idumea is a place that's mixed with the descendants of Esau. Uh, and then beyond the Jordan, the Transjordan, uh, that's not a very Jewish place. And then if you want it to be even more Gentile, you talk about way up north in Tyre and Sidon along the coast of the Mediterranean. You see, there was no discrimination in the crowds. The crowds were pressing after Jesus. And though in different passages in the New Testament, like John chapter 6, we see Jesus being sought after because of his miraculous provision of food, in Mark's gospel, this early stage, a great number of people, it says in verse 8, heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And their primary concern as Jesus seeks out a boat to be ready for him to get away from this crowd in verse 9. Their primary concern is given to us in verse 10. This is what the crowd is all about. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions, a scourge of various diseases, pressed around him in order to touch him. The people believed that Jesus could relieve them of their distressing illnesses. And there was no other solutions in their day. Without any hospital, without any modern medicine, something as simple as a broken bone could lead to lifelong deformity. And without penicillin or uh, any kind of antibiotic, uh, um, a small cut could turn easily into an infection of the blood. 
people would die of ordinary and what we would consider very minor illnesses in these days. The mortality rate was very high. And so people with different and various diseases knew that this was their only hope for complete restoration and healing. And so because they valued their own lives and the lives of the people they loved, they went to Jesus in mass, pressing on him, pushing him, trying to get near to him, asking of him, beseeching him, requesting, trying to, if they could just touch him. And that became something evident in the Gospels in later points that people came to believe that merely by touching Jesus's garments, just by getting close enough to either address him by name or to physically put their hand on him, that he would be able to relieve their affliction. And they were not wrong. Jesus had spent an entire night, all throughout the night following the Sabbath, healing vast crowds of people. And some commentators have speculated that in Jesus' healing ministry, disease was nearly vanquished from Palestine. And I don't know if that was the case, but certainly the testimonies of the thousands upon thousands of people who had received the healing touch of Jesus would have spread and made his ministry so famous and so sought after. And so the crowd was full of Lots of different kinds of people. And it wasn't just people with physical sicknesses and infirmities. It was also people who had significant spiritual problems. Uh, Demon-possessed people, or as the Jewish uh, people called them in verse 11, people with unclean spirits. And that's, that's the Jewish phrase for, for demon possession because it wasn't just that this person had been occupied by Uh, the forces of darkness and hell. It was that this person was now not only ritually unclean, but they were severed off from God. That's why they're called unclean spirits. And apart from the will of the person they inhabited, they would cause these people to be driven to Jesus and fall down before him and make these declarations. Some think these declarations were an attempt to gain mastery over Jesus by using his name. But most likely they said this, these demonic spirits said this confession of Jesus is the son of God to either cut off his intended proclamation of showing who he is by his works and his words or because they had no other choice because of the great power of Jesus over them. Whatever it was, Jesus wanted no part of their evangelistic efforts. He wanted the demons to be quiet. They were not to represent him. They were not to expose him on their timetable. They were to submit to him as the Lord of all the universe. And so he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And just a chapter away, in chapter five, we'll see Jesus encounter a legion of demons and how he treats them is very telling of his involvement in the spiritual realm of these people. And so what we have on display at the first part of this passage in verses 7 through 12 is a profile of the crowd. 
uh, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, in the first chapter, in verses 7 and 9, and in verse 16, and in chapter 4, verse 10, and 14, verse 10, and all throughout the rest of Mark's Gospel, he'll use this word crowd, 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 to show that there is a kind of following Jesus that is different than discipleship. That there is a mass response, a mob mentality that seeks after Jesus because of benefits that he gives in the temporal realm. Just physical satisfaction from disease or nutrition from the food that he gives to them. So that John, when he writes his gospel, says uh, in the lips of Jesus, you seek not because of the signs, but because you had your fill. You see, Jesus was doing all these miracles to show who he was and where he had come from. And the message was to be received because it had been authenticated by these signs. But now these crowds are not interested in signs. In other words, what these miracles signify, what they stand for, the the coming of Jesus and the ushering in of his kingdom. They're not interested in the coming of Jesus and the ushering in of his kingdom. They're interested in the earthly benefits therein. And so we have to learn from this example. We here in the gym this morning have to learn from this example that crowds are not to be trusted. And I understand that we already are a little bit iffy about crowds after the the last year, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about them breathing on you. I'm talking about the crowds not being a sure sign of true religious conviction. Just because there's a gathering there of people mobbing around Jesus doesn't make this genuine discipleship. There are lots of gatherings happening all over our city this morning that fall far short of identifying either as true disciples of Jesus or as an actual church that that God has instituted, ordained, and blessed. Just because there's a crowd there doesn't mean that genuine faith is being manifest. I told you last time, John 2, 28 says that though the crowds believed in Jesus, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew the heart of every man. And so there's a spurious kind of faith, a fake kind of faith that can be manifest in an individual and in lots of individuals surrounding them that seek after Jesus, not on his terms, but on their terms. And so we're careful with crowds because they are interested in his benefits, but not in his authority. They have faith to a degree, but it's not the kind of faith that saves Listen to the words of James Edwards commenting on these crowds. The crowd is a paradox. Its needs command Jesus' attention. And Jesus is fully attentive to the misery present in its numbers. But its clamor is not a response of faith. And so in these verses, the crowds fall upon Jesus, pressing against him. The evil spirits fall before Jesus, uh, announcing his, his true nature and origin as the Son of God. But none of these are responses of genuine faith. And Mark, for his part, is concerned that we would notice this. 
And as he chronicles the institution of the 12 apostles, the very beginning of God reconstituting his spiritual people, a new kind of Israel, a church that will be undefeated by the gates of hell, a church that will transcend national boundaries. He wants us to understand the terms of discipleship. And he'll continue to do this, not just in the passage we're looking at today, but in the following passage where we see the relationship of Jesus, first to the devil and then to his mother and his brothers in a physical, familial way. And so what we have in this next part of the passage, if we look at the crowds in verses 7 through 12, in verses 13 through 19, 13 through 19, we see the called. And there's a contrast here between the crowd and the called. It's a contrast that was clear in this historical moment as Jesus set aside his apostles, his 12 disciples. And it's a contrast that's going to be realized when people today come to understand the nature of true discipleship. And I think I gave you a definition last week of discipleship. It's helping someone follow Jesus or helping others follow Jesus. I stole it from Mark Dever, who stole it from the Bible. It's a good definition. It's a simple definition of discipleship. But I want to give you more than that today as we look more closely at verses 13 through 19. I want to counter some of the myths and misunderstandings that people have about what it means to be a disciple. It's not a higher level of Christianity. It's true Christianity. It's not a more mature stage of Christianity. It is what the gospel requires. If you are a believer, you're a disciple. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are being discipled by Jesus. If you are growing in your faith, if you're a newborn baby Christian, or if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you are a disciple of Jesus. It is a synonymous way to talk about Christianity. Christians are Jesus people. They're Jesus followers. They're his disciples, his learners, and he's our master. And that word mathetes, that's the Greek word for disciple, featured in verse 6 of uh, Mark chapter 3, and then shown to us to have another title called Apostle. And in this passage, what I want you to see is five marks of, of what true discipleship is all about. And it's not about the in-group versus the out-group. It's not about a higher level of spirituality. This is the most essential nature and definition of what it means to follow Jesus. So let's start in verse 13 with the first mark of genuine discipleship. And the first mark is this. It's, it's, I'll just give you a single word for each of these. Let's talk about the source, the source of true discipleship, okay? Verse 13, look what it says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. First, the geographical note there, he goes from seeking, uh, from withdrawing to the sea, an area, probably uh, a coastal area that had more room uh, for the crowds to spread, for Jesus to even make a getaway if necessary in the boat, to somehow escaping that group 
And moving, uh, according to the book of John, he had a night of prayer that's not listed here in Mark. But after that night of prayer and uh, calling on his father, he makes his way up to the hillside, to the mountainsides, to the, to the, uh, the regions where in the ancient world uh, this was a safe place to get away from the authorities. This would be a, the kind of place that rebels would gather. In ancient literature, there's examples of, of counter-movements, of rebellions, of uh, some kind of anti-Roman uh, gatherings that would take place in a, in a place like this. You don't have that kind of a meeting in the middle of the town. You don't have that kind of a meeting in front of the crowds. There's an intimacy here that he's seeking after. There's also something that is counter everything that Rome has required and expected. And it's also been shown to us, this is counter the religion of Jesus's day. Judaism is actively rejecting Jesus as he's making himself known to the people of Israel. And so to get away from the religious establishment and to get away from the governmental authorities who are now in cahoots, as they say, uh, with the Roman authorities and with the ruling Jewish authorities, Jesus scrams for the hills. He hides out and he grabs his, his ragtag crowd. But this isn't just, you know, maybe some folks are, are, you know, following Jesus a little more closely. The language in verse 13 is fascinating and it tells us something about the source of true discipleship. These guys didn't just fall into this. These guys didn't just kind of hop from teacher to teacher and land on Jesus. The initiative, the source, the origin of their followership is not in themselves. It's in the Lord who called them. Look at the language of verse 13. In Greek, it's so stark. It says, and summoned those whom he himself wanted. Or summoned those he willed. I mean, it's just a, a weird way of saying that. And, and it's intended to be bold. It's intended to be underlined. It's intended to help you see that there's something going on in the, in the call of these 12 disciples. And in the call of every disciple that finds its origin and source in Jesus himself. That's why there's an emphasis in verse 14 and in verse 16 on this number 12. Uh, I told you before that, that there's a certain number of, of congressmen and senators and, and state representatives, and, and some of you know that number, but every Israelite knows the number 12. They all would have heard it and they would have thought immediately of their own national heritage. The 12, to say the 12 was to uh, use the most provocative number Jesus could have possibly used in his society on that day. It's as if I said, you know, I'm sick of the Estadios Unidos. I'm sick of it. And I'm going to start something new at the cul-de-sac at my house. We're going to start 50... Mm, regions, and we'll call one Wyoming. 
50 regions. You'd know what I'm getting at, right? When Jesus says that he is going to call 12, when he appoints these 12, two times that phrase, he appointed the 12. He's trying to show that there's something subversive happening in these hills. There's something connected to the old way that God worked among Israel, something connected to the patriarch Jacob and his 12 sons, a story that is the ancient origin story of the Jewish people. The the patriarch's sons, all 12 of them, had been scattered for a long time. 700 years earlier during the Assyrian captivity, 10 of the tribes were lost. Have you ever heard like a weird internet conspiracy about the lost tribes of Israel? Uh, That's what this is about. There were genuinely 10 tribes lost from Israel because they lost their national identity in the invasion and their their capture by the Assyrian uh, army. But throughout the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied, because it's what prophets do is they prophesy, they prophesied of a national restoration, uh, a, a regathering of God's people, a reestablishment of the people in the land, a, a, a place again where, where God would fulfill that covenant that he made with Abraham, their father, that they would be a, a people belonging to God, that they would have a land that was their own possession and that they would be a blessing to the ends of the earth. It's that trifold promise that, that Abraham had carried and that his son and his son and those 12 sons had all held on to and the people of Israel had lost so much of their identity. So when Jesus says, I appoint these 12, separating them from this mob and this crowd, uh, giving them an authority and a commission, no one missed what he was doing. He was starting something new. There was a renewal taking place that had political implications and spiritual implications and eschatological implications and social implications. When Jesus went to the hills with the 12 that he called and summoned that he himself willed and wanted, there is a sovereign gathering of a new people of God, a new kind of Israel that will be the church and it will be different than the old, but will be built on that same foundation. There's something happening here, subversive and revolutionary. There's something happening here that is going to be a reconstitution of God's true people that will God will use to build his kingdom in a new way that will be the fulfillment fulfillment of all that went before. That's why this matters so much, this number 12. And that's why the origin of true discipleship has everything to do with the will of Jesus. You see, if you are suddenly being compelled to follow Jesus, that's not just because you've tasted the dissatisfaction of sin your whole life. If you're suddenly feeling drawn to the Lord Jesus, something's happening to you that finds its origin and source 
in the will of Jesus, the one who's calling you to himself. And so Jesus's appointment of his disciples is not happenstance. It is not accidental. It is an extraordinary kind of calling that is started with the will of Jesus and can best be described in this passage in verse 12 as a summons. So what is the source of discipleship? It's not you signing up for a program or you know, one, one more way where you might be able to beat some bad habits in your life. It's listening to and answering the call of Jesus that originates in his mouth, from his will. And that's why every discipleship story, even the ones where disciples turn and walk away from him, in the case of Judas, or in the case of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, or in the case of one who is drawn to Jesus compellingly against all odds, in the case of Mark chapter 5, in the demoniac from Gennesaret, Every single one of these finds its origin in the call of Jesus on their life to abandon the things they followed before and to come after him. That is true discipleship. It sources Christ himself. The second mark of discipleship in this passage that I'd like you to notice, besides all all that goes into verse 13, which is is that concept of of a reconstitution of Israel, uh, of God's people, and the origin and source and the master plan of this all being found in God himself and in the call of Jesus. The second is I'd like you to see the simplicity of discipleship. I think it's on display here, the simplicity of discipleship. And and J-Mac stole this part from me this morning preemptively because he talked about this really well and eloquently. So I don't feel like I need to belabor this because that was the whole point of his sermon. But let me show it to you in this text just to back it up a little bit. So first is source, second is simplicity. And we see this in the first half of verse 14. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. It's easy to skip over that phrase, isn't it? so that they would be with him. You know, the most remarkable part of discipleship was the proximity that Jesus invited them to. The proximity to himself. And I hope you never lose that aspect of discipleship. I was talking to somebody after last week about discipleship and what this means. And we talked about a, a paradigm from a book that came out 10, 15 years ago called The Trellis and the Vine. Maybe you've heard of it. It's, it's semi-helpful. Uh, it talks about, it's like a, a, a book about church organization. It's a book about discipleship, the trellis and the vine. And it, it uses a metaphor of a trellis. And this trellis, you guys know what a trellis is? It's like a thing that you grow a plant on, the, the, the hatchy thing, you know, that your mom puts the roses on and the, they grow up and they hang on there, the grapes or whatever. You with me? Trellis? Not if you know trellis. Conozco trellis. Okay. Trellis uh, is, in this paradigm, it's the idea of a structure. It's the idea of programs. It's, it's organizational elements. The vine is the organic growth of the church. It's the Spirit of God working in people, drawing them to himself, and then sanctifying them by the truth. 
And these things happen hand in hand, and both are biblical. The concept of elders and deacons of church governance, that would be trellis. But the kind of men that they're supposed to be, that would be vine. And so together, both in organizational elements and in the spiritual vitality, you find a good combination of growth. If you have lots of trellis, like we have 49 levels of small groups, and you have to have two leaders in each small group, and they're going to go through this material, and they're going to report back to me, and there'll be a quiz, trellis. Vine, let's just read our Bibles, man. So a combination of those two things, you have trellis and vine. I think you see that here. But the first priority of these disciples, I think, is reflected in the simplicity of what true discipleship always is. It is, he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. So that they would be with him. What would indelibly change these men's lives was the time they would spend with the master, hanging on his words, watching his interaction with with people, seeing the signs, hearing them explained, uh, being mystified by the, the parables and then having Jesus walk them through their significance and meaning but to dine with him and to travel with him and to sojourn towards Jerusalem and towards the cross with him, to know him personally and to to be loved by Jesus was what would leave that indelible mark on all their lives. The simplicity of discipleship captured by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is this, follow me as I follow Christ. A disciple is never greater than his master because he's focused on his master. And Jesus' appointment of these 12 is exactly what we heard about in church this morning. It's the simplicity of loving and obeying Jesus. It's simply to follow him. Don't overcomplicate discipleship with all kinds of a thousand different rules for relationships and, and 10 different steps for modesty and, and 12 different you know, ways that you have to be involved in the church if you really, really love Jesus. Try to remember that first and foremost, discipleship is focused on Christ. It's uncomplicated. It's, it's simple. It's what we learned in, what was the passage this morning? 2 Corinthians 11. It's pure and sincere devotion to Christ. That was the phrase. 2 Corinthians 11, pure and sincere devotion to Christ. That word pure is a funny word, isn't it? Pure. We like pure things. We like our, we like our, our uh, I'll tell you a story. Owen, my son Owen, he's a, he's a good man. Good man is hard to find. Turns 11 this week. It's big time. 11. Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. So Owen has, we think, Owen has a chef's palate. We've always thought that about him. There's things he doesn't like, like all little boys, you know, tomato, he'll spit it right out. But there's something about Owen that likes nice things. 
And after football practice or at some event this week, it was a morning thing, I don't know what it was. I'm not 11, so I forget all things. We went to breakfast, just me and O. And all the breakfast places were full. So we went to that exquisite place that only if you have a refined taste in breakfasts can you really you know, savor an experience. We went to McDonald's. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And so Owen orders what Owen always orders, which is the pancakes and the sausage. And I order seven McGriddles. And I'm kidding, I don't do that. So Owen's not eating his pancakes. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to eat them at home. And I'm like, I understand because it's messy to eat pancakes in the back of my truck. My truck thanks you for this. And he says, no, I don't like the McDonald's syrup. I like mom's syrup. Because Marilee is a syrup snob. And she has the stuff that comes from the trees. It ain't cheap, but it's good. Maple syrup. And if you've had McDonald's syrup and you've had maple syrup, you know the difference. I mean, Miss Butterworth, she didn't have a chance. Plus, she, she got canceled, I think, or something. So we like maple syrup because there's something pure about it. It's not just like boiled sugar with some brown stuff added. This came out of a tree one time. And so we understand when something is pure, it's good. It's, it's the essence of it. It's the nature of it. Well, Pure Christianity is, is Christianity that has as its focus and defining feature, not just the cultural aspects that come with being a Christian, but at the very core of, of true discipleship is a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. I mean, you guys know this because you go to Grace Church. The Puritans are our friends. But in college, I mean, you'll hear bad stuff said about the Puritans all the time. You take an American history class, they'll say, oh, the Puritans, they were, they were dour. They were killjoys, the Puritans. They were separatists. They were nasty fundamentalists. But that's not what the word pure means. And that revival of biblical Christianity that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries in England and beyond, the Puritan movement was not primarily or predominantly a political aspect in history. It was a revival in the church to a return to pure religion, a religion that was focused on Jesus and his word. In fact, they didn't call themselves Puritans. That would be very dour if they did. That was a name that was given to them by their enemies. In fact, the, the original name was Doctrinal Puritans. And it was used disparagingly. Ugh, these people are doctrinal Puritans. They, they just can't take it easy on anything. There was an older name that didn't stick. They called them Precisionists. Did you know that? Precisionists. It's from the Latin. Precis means to cut. It's like exacting. And they said they're sick of these people in the church because they keep calling for precision, for doctrinal purity. And that's what the Puritans were about. Like the reformers before them, they weren't trying to leave the church and start their own. They were trying to return to pure doctrine, pure life, and the pure and 
clear devotion and pursuit of Christ and Christ-likeness. That's why we love the Puritans. That's why I recommend to you Puritan works and Puritan paperbacks and Puritan t-shirts, Puritan keychains. Sorry, I got junked up with the books and the keychains. But the reason any of that stuff exists is because at the heart of Puritanism is what we see in this passage. Jesus called those disciples primarily so that they would be with him. To be with him. If you're mixed up about what part of discipleship you should pursue, why don't you start there? And if you've been following Jesus for a long time, why don't you return to that? Let's follow Jesus purely and simply. And that will require doctrinal purity and purity in your life as you pursue pure Christ likeness. But that's the start of it because it's centered and grounded on Jesus. The third mark of discipleship I see in this passage is also in the second half of verse 14, moving into verse 15. And you could chop this into a few, but I just want to use one word, and it's the word authority. You see, disciples have authority, and they get it from their teacher, from their master. And these apostles had a unique authority, and some of it is shared with disciples today, and some of it is not. Look at what the text says in verse 14, second half, that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. In other passages, there's a third purpose added there, that they would uh, heal diseases. And part of the apostolic appointment and authority was they were given both the words and wisdom of Jesus as well as the power of Jesus on display as a way to authenticate their message. The disciples were able to cast out demons. The disciples were able to heal diseases. And the disciples went out with the primary purpose, just like Jesus, not of doing those signs, but of what signs are for. Signs were to point. They were to authenticate. They were to validate the message. And that's why it says he could send them out to preach. And so I put this under the category of authority. In other words, you follow Jesus and then he commissions you to do what Jesus does, to do what Jesus wants to be done. And what Jesus came to do, according to Mark chapter one, is that he came to announce and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so these apostles, these 12, uh, now reconstituting the people of God in this, this momentous way are also going to bring in the validity of this kingdom by showing the power of God just like Jesus did. And we'll encounter this in just a, a few chapters when they're sent out two by two. And in this giving of authority, we're reminded that disciples aren't rogue agents. Disciples aren't cult leaders. Disciples aren't supposed to start their own version of this thing. There should be something common in every disciple of Jesus, and that's that they follow the same Lord and that they're about the same priorities. And that priority is biblically always going to be the preaching of the gospel. Now, for these first apostles, in this extraordinary time of the church and of authenticating Jesus' ministry, the Spirit is at work in a powerful way as they are given the power to 
cast out demons, to heal diseases, and these things, these miraculous acts, accompany their ministry, but not forever. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, apostles are called foundational, foundational. And that's why I don't go to Calvary Chapel anymore, because I don't have apostolic power. I don't have apostolic authority. I can't uh, heal you of your diseases. God can. I could pray that he would. But I don't have that apostolic power where, uh, you know, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you, zap. I don't have that. The people on TV say they have it, but there's never been a single, you know, occurrence of this actually working out for them. And they have bad doctrine, so what's God authenticating? Sorry, this is not a class on cessationism. That's tomorrow at 2 o'clock. So what, what, what I'm trying to say to you is, is there is something unique about the apostolic ministry, and there's something in the authority of the apostolic ministry where they are doing the work of Christ that is common to us. In other words, when Jesus commissions all his disciples in Matthew 28 and sends them to announce the gospel and call people to obedience and to baptize them, uh, that is a commission that he gives to all of us. He does not give the same commission to all of us to heal diseases. That's a foundational work of the apostles. And as the, the story of the apostles continues, you find that they do not have the exact authority of Jesus either, but more on that later. So that's the authority of discipleship, the authority of discipleship. We do what Jesus tells us to do. The fourth thing I'd like you to see is the variety of discipleship, the variety of discipleship. And that's just to look at these names. To look at these names, some of whom are, are, are near and dear to our hearts, like Peter, like the two, you know, wrathful knuckleheads, James and John, Andrew and Philip, some of them more known to us, like Matthew, the, the tax collector, but others obscure. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. In these names, what we see is we see great variety. They're all Jewish, but there's such a such an unguessable way about them. I mean, the kind of disciples that Jesus chooses, the both that constitute his inner circle and that make up the rest of the twelve, are are a striking ragtag bunch. It's no wonder in the book of Acts that people were dumbfounded by their preaching because these were not the leading leaders of the day. They weren't highly educated. They weren't influential in any kind of worldly sense of the word. They were mostly fishermen. And the ones that weren't fishermen were some rogue rebel called the the zealot. I mean, he was part of some anti-government movement. And then you, you look at, at Matthew and you have somebody who is so rejected even by these disciples that he would have been very hard to fit into the group with his, his act of defiance against his own Jewish people, his alliance with the Romans as a, as a swindling tax collector. And what we see here is a portrait of the variety of the kind of people that Jesus calls. And Jesus teaches us what they are. You know what they have in common more than anything else? It's not their Jewishness 
What they have in common more than anything else is their need of the physician. Jesus calls sinners, and that net that he casts picks up all kinds of them. All kinds of different people make up his disciples. And the variety of discipleship is this. It's that there is not a monolithic type or a personality that follows Christ. It's not all type A or type B. I don't even know what type A and type B are. But it's not those things that define us. It's the allegiance to the master. And so we have this very broad group of disciples. And the variety of God's choice is on display not because of something in them, but because Jesus calls them, he wills them, he summons them. So if we see the source, the simplicity, the authority, the variety of discipleship, the last thing I want to show you about this list is is the destiny of it. Verse 14, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Why would Mark put that there without writing spoiler alert? If you've never read this before, suddenly Judas Iscariot is featured as the betrayer, but the betrayal hasn't happened yet. It's because it left a mark on Mark. It's because he'd never be able to see the name Judas again without remembering his, his destiny and his betrayal of the one who betrayed the Lord with a kiss for a price and then went out and hung himself. I mean, the 12 apostles, every one of these guys has a destiny. And a few of them you see in the, in the Bible, you see them fulfill their destiny, or you see Peter being called to his destiny by the Lord in the time of his restoration. You see in Judas his, his betrayal and his, his death. But when you look at all these apostles, what you'll see more than anything else is martyrdom for the cause of Christ. Peter crucified according to tradition upside down alongside his precious wife. Andrew would go on to preach. Again, this is all Eusebius and early writers saying he preached in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and in Greece. Andrew also crucified the Christians in kind of the land below the Soviet Union. Think of Andrew as their their patron saint. Thomas probably went to Syria, and tradition has him making it all the way to India to preach the gospel, where ancient Christians in India call Thomas their founder. Those early documents claim that he was pierced with swords and spears by four soldiers simultaneously as he gave testimony to the resurrection of Christ. Philip went to Carthage and then North Africa. Eventually, uh, there'd be other Christians there like Augustine and Hippo. He preached the gospel to a wife of a Roman proconsul, and the proconsul had him arrested and tortured and killed in retaliation. Matthew would write the gospel according to Matthew and Some reports say he was martyred, some don't, but the ones that do says he made it all the way to Ethiopia with his gospel. Bartholomew had a a wide missionary travel, according to tradition, uh, maybe going to India with Thomas and then to Armenia. Any, Any homies in the house? And then Ethiopia and Southern Arabia 
And there's various accounts in church tradition, later accounts that say he was a martyr for the gospel. The son of Alphaeus is one of a pile of Jameses in the New Testament. And it's always hard to kind of sort which James is whom, but the James that ministered in Syria that Josephus tells us was stoned and then clubbed to death both ways. The angry mob wouldn't listen to his preaching. Simon the Zealot now became a follower of Jesus and ministered in Persia. And a story is told that he refused to sacrifice to Helios, the sun god, or whatever the Persian version of that god was, and he was killed for it. And you can keep going. You can talk about Matthias, the one chosen to replace Judas, or you can talk about Paul losing his head to a Roman sword. But every single disciple of Jesus finds in their discipleship a culmination a glorious finality to it, ultimately a destiny that Jesus promised that what they did to him, he'll do to, they'll do to you. That's what we have to be mindful of if we're going to talk about the simplicity of discipleship and the authority of discipleship and the source of discipleship. And if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, you can't forget for a moment that the way it went for Jesus is the way that it will go for you. If you're faithful as a follower of Christ, you will experience what he experienced. Persecution and hatred, animosity, and even likely death. And it's that martyrdom that marks all 12 of these names. It's the reminder of the cost of discipleship. That when we follow Jesus faithfully, we will follow him to the end. Or like Judas, we won't. We'll turn back and go back to the crowd, to those who know that Jesus can meet their physical needs, but their clamor is not a response of faith. If you want to truly follow Jesus, follow him in faith and repentance and know that your destiny may also be the cross. Father, thank you for the call of discipleship. And I pray for that pure pursuit of Christ-likeness among us. Use this reminder from this passage of Scripture to clarify in minds today what it means to follow Jesus. And may they weigh the cost and follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.